Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, the rest of you, open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John, which is uh, very close to the end of the New Testament. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and the book of 1 John is on page 591 of that Bible. One of the uh, common topics of conversation, it seems, in our nation today is the way our country is divided. I just kind of did a little Google search, divided nation, and found a number of uh, headlines that came up from different publications. The New York Times wrote an article called The Divided States of America. National Review said people must find a way to connect in order for America to survive. A website called The Salon said that we as a country have been more divided since any time since the Civil War. And The Atlantic Magazine also did an article about this whole topic, and the writer mentioned that really the way forward, or one of the ways to to deal with this, is to find what they said was a common and unifying set of beliefs and practices. What we need is our common beliefs and common practices, according to this article, if we're going to be united. Now, that seems to me to be a very hard thing to find common beliefs and common practices. And the reason why is because we live in a society, in a nation, and in a culture that values diversity very highly. We live in a society that's called a pluralistic society, which means um, we have a flourishing of many different spiritual and religious viewpoints. And what that ends up doing, even as good as diversity is in a lot of respects, it makes it very hard to know what's true when it comes to spiritual things. We live in very spiritually confusing times. And that actually puts us in a place very similar to the time in which the New Testament was written because the times were spiritually confusing then. But maybe some of you are here today you know, wanting to worship God, but kind of deep down in the back of your mind, I mean, you're just not really so sure what you believe. There seems to be just so many forces impinging upon us, kind of undermining our faith. I mean, we hear, for instance, that we hear about people who, are, um, who hold to their beliefs very strongly, and they won't hear anything else, and they end up doing very bad things in the name of the things that they believe, and we call them fanatics. And so sometimes we look at those kinds of people and we say, well, we don't want to be like them, and so we kind of back off of our beliefs a little bit. Or um, we might read a website or read a book by an atheist, and he's very clever and very smart, and he makes some very plausible arguments, and you start thinking, you know, I, I don't know. Is Christianity really true? Can I really hold to these beliefs with any confidence? Uh, If you come out of the academic world, you know that any claim to know the truth is considered to be an assertion of power. It's considered to be impolite at best and dangerous at worst. 
to claim that you actually know the truth. And so as we're swimming in these cultural waters all the time, even as Christians, we might come away thinking, can I know anything for sure? Can I be certain of my beliefs and my convictions? We're starting a new sermon series today, and it's on the book of 1 John, and the title of this sermon series is That You May Know. And we're going to be going through this entire book, kind of passage by passage, over the next a few months. And I want to encourage you today to know that this book of 1 John is written that you may know. It's written to give you assurance and confidence in things that you believe. And the reason that I know that is because if we go to the end of the book, 1 John 5, 13, John says this very clearly as he's kind of summing up the whole book. I write these things. So everything that we're going to be covering here over the next couple of months, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So apparently, according to John, it is possible for us to have some degree of confidence. I mean, do we want to say certainty? I mean, I I don't know about that. But certainly we have reason to be confident. This doesn't mean that we develop an attitude of thinking we know everything. It doesn't mean that we shut our ears to opposing views. It doesn't mean that we become self-righteous and condescending toward people who disagree with us. But it does mean that it is possible to know, to have confidence, to be assured in what we believe. And so we're going to begin this morning with these first four verses in um, 1 John. And um, this book is written, this epistle is written by the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And it was one of the very last letters in the New Testament written, so probably sometime between 85 and 95 AD, so a later book. And most scholars believe that John wrote this letter from the city of Ephesus. That might ring a bell because last Sunday uh, on the State of the Church sermon, we looked at Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7, which was Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. And so John apparently was in that church when he wrote this letter. It's a little different than some of the other New Testament letters. It kind of moves in circles sometimes, and so we're going to see things repeated And uh, we're just going to take them as they come, as we go through uh, this book, probably written a little more like a sermon than like Paul's letters. Uh, But in any case, we're going to look and trust God to give us strength, confidence, and assurance in our faith. So let's stand and read these first four verses of 1 John. John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. God in heaven, 
Send your spirit to open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, how, how is it that we can come to a degree of confidence in what we believe? How, how can we know certain things spiritually speaking? So we're talking about um, you know, issues that are outside the purview of a scientific experiment or a laboratory. So that makes it a little uh, harder maybe to say that we actually know something. Um, so there's three ways in this passage that we're told that we can come to know the truth about who God is, about the gospel, uh, about spiritual things. And the first is this, because God has broken into this world. Because God has, from the outside, broken in. You know, I think it's just common sense, right? If God were to remain in heaven and remain outside of this world, there's no way we could possibly know him, right? He has to do something. He has to reveal himself in some way, and that's what God has done, and that's what John tells us here. So look at how this starts here in the first verse. John is talking about something that has been heard, something that has been seen, something that's been looked upon, something that has been touched. So what is this thing? Well, he goes on and he says these all are concerning the word of life. What, what is this word of life? That there's a, commentaries just have all sorts of different opinions about what this word of life actually is. It seems a little bit like John is talking about some inanimate object here, something that's not personal, but as he goes on, uh, we see that that's not actually true. So it's concerning this word of life. And we look at the very beginning of verse 1 and we see that, that this uh, thing that John is talking about was from the beginning. If you go back to verse 2, this, this life, this word of life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it, proclaim to you this eternal life. So what John has in mind here is something called life or the word of life. And it has been around since the very beginning and it's called something that is eternal. And so what John seems to be saying here is that if you just think back as far as you can with your mind, just you know, go back before there were dinosaurs and go back before Adam and Eve and, and go back before the Big Bang, if, if you believe that that happened, and once you get past the Big Bang, you just keep in your mind going back and back and back as far as you possibly can. No matter how far back you go, there's always God. He's eternal. He's always been there. You, you cannot go to any point in the past that exceeds the existence of God. But what John is saying here is he's not talking about the Father in this first verse. He's talking about this word of life, and the word was manifest, um, and it's the eternal life. And then look at that in verse 2, the end of verse 2. This eternal life was with the Father, and then was made manifest. So we've got the Father, and then we've got this eternal life with the Father. So if you do the same experiment, and you go back as far as you can before the dinosaurs, before Big Bang, and you keep going back and back and back and back, you can also never get to a point where this life, this eternal life, this word of life doesn't exist. That word of life is always with the Father as far back as you can go. Two 
entities, two persons here, Father and the Word of Life. Now, this should bring to your mind something that maybe you've heard about in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, again, which was written by the same person. In John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning, very similar start as 1 John, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we have something called the Word, very similar to this Word of Life in verse 1. This Word of God was God, but also with God. So a Word existing alongside the Word of God for all eternity. And so what we're getting here a picture of is this divine person alongside the Father who, according to John, has been made manifest. In other words, has broken into our world. And we know who John is talking about in both cases. He's talking about Jesus Christ. His name wasn't Jesus when he, before his birth, he was called the Word of Life, the second person of the Trinity, existing alongside the Father, and in God's mercy, he sent into the world and he breaks in to our existence in space, time, and history. And so this is what John is talking about, where he's talking about the, what he's heard, what he's seen, what he's looked upon, and what he's touched. He's talking about God coming into the world. I mean, you can just imagine that, reaching out and touching God. Having God come close to you so that you can hear him and see him and see what he looks like and look upon him and touch him. That's precisely what John is talking about. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. This is what we celebrate every Christmas, this idea that God has broken into history. Now, we might ask, why is John making such a big deal out of this? And the reason is because of a certain heresy that was present in the church at this time. Now, there was probably a number of heresies that the church was fighting, but one of the major heresies in the early part of the church was called Gnosticism. And most scholars believe that John had Gnosticism in mind as he was writing these things in 1 John. Um, Gnosticism is uh, a belief that holds to several characteristics. For one, Gnosticism has a disdain for physical matter. So Gnostics think the world, trees, dirt, clouds, bodies, food, all of this is, is, is evil. Created physical matter is inherently bad, according to the Gnostic view. So they would say that our problem is not sin, it's not rebellion against God, it's not the fact that we use our wills to resist him, it's the fact that we're all trapped in bodies. That's our problem. And if we want salvation, what we should long for is not forgiveness of sin, but escape from the body and escape from this world to just get out of here somehow. And so the Gnostic view is always longing for uh, an escape from the world, and as a result of that, they look at the earth and anything earthly and anything worldly as inherently evil, wicked, bad, and to be dismissed. And so sometimes Gnosticism can kind of sound good because they talk about being very spiritually minded, and of course as Christians we should be spiritually minded, but they see spiritual mindedness as something that transcends earthly 
heavenly-mindedness. Sometimes you hear about Christians who are so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good. And sometimes that can happen, right? We get so caught up in our spiritual thoughts that we forget about our responsibilities on the earth. Well, the Gnostics are perfectly comfortable with that. To be so spiritually minded you're no earthly could, no problem for Gnostics. Now, if you're tracking with me here, you might realize that this causes some real problems for the gospel. Because if this is right, if physical matter is inherently evil, then how can a holy God ever connect himself to physical matter? How can a holy God ever take to himself a human body? He can't, according to the Gnostics. So the Gnostics deny that God can take a human body to himself. They deny the incarnation. But not only that, the Gnostics also can't see how God in his holiness can be connected with sin in any way. In other words, Jesus cannot bear our sin upon himself in the Gnostic view because God cannot be connected to sin in that way. And then in addition to that, they also, the Gnostics, don't like the idea of a resurrection because Jesus was resurrected in his body, but they don't like bodies, so they have no room for a resurrection. And so in other words, Gnosticism completely undermines the whole gospel. And this is what John is dealing with. This is part of what he has in mind. He's saying primarily to the Gnostics and those teaching in the church, he's saying this eternal life who existed from all eternity, God himself, I'm telling you Gnostics, I heard him and I saw him and I looked out and I touched him. I put my hand on his body And I can testify that he is a real human being, a man who has come, God in the flesh. Uh, This might make you think of Luke chapter 24. This is Jesus after his resurrection, and he's talking to his disciples, and he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Touch me, Jesus says. I want you to know that I am resurrected in my body, that I have come to take on human flesh. What this tells us is that God has broken into our world because he cares about our world, because he desires to redeem this world, because he wants to fix everything that's broken in this world. The gospel is, in a sense, it's very worldly. I mean, now worldly, we can define that in different ways. When we get to chapter two, we're gonna unpack that in a little more. But by worldly, I don't mean sinful. I mean the gospel is worldly in the sense that God has an interest in the earth on which we live and the life that we live in this place. And his intent is not to sweep us out of here to go off to the clouds to live for all eternity. His goal and desire is redeeming this place. Not just us, but the whole earth. So you might ask yourself, you know, you might say, well, what's the big deal, this Gnosticism that people believed it 2,000 years ago? Why are we learning about that in church? Well, the reason why is because Gnosticism continues to show its influence in many different ways. So, for instance, if you have ever thought, if you ever considered that heaven is just simply a place for your soul to go and live for all eternity... Your soul is going to go be with God and your soul will be there forever and your body will stay in the ground and never be resurrected and it will just turn to dust for all eternity. If that's your conception of heaven, then you're thinking like a Gnostic. 
And my guess is probably, I don't know, maybe two out of three people probably are nodding their heads. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the common conception of heaven among many Christians. I die, my soul goes into the clouds, and that's where I'll be forever with God. No future for my body, no future for the earth. God's done with the earth. He's going to burn it up and send it away. I'm just going to float in the clouds for all eternity. That's Gnosticism. <laughs> it's heretical. Now, if you believe that, I'm not calling you a heretic, and I'm not necessarily saying that you're Gnostic. I mean, you might think that way, you know, in line with the way Gnostics think and not be a full-blown Gnostic. What, what I'm trying to show you is that Gnosticism continues to this day to have influence on the way we think. Uh, here's another example. If you have ever thought, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm a spiritually-minded person, so therefore, I don't have to have any interest in politics. I don't have to have any interest in the arts. I don't have to have any interest in history. I don't have to have any interest in social justice because I don't care about what happens on this earth because I'm leaving the earth one day and I'm never coming back. That's Gnostic. That's, a, that's, a not, that, that's, that's thinking like a Gnostic. How about the whole transgender movement. I mean, think about the, the way their case is made. The idea is that, you know, my body shows that I'm one particular gender, but really the gender I am is the gender that I feel that I am. And so what my physical body is telling me is irrelevant and secondary. It's how I feel. It's how I express myself, and that ends up taking priority over the way the physical body has actually been created. That, that also is kind of a Gnostic way of thinking. So John is addressing this issue uh, in this passage, and Gnosticism continues to have its influence today. But one of the ways that you can know the truth is because God has not remained outside the world, but has actually broken into it. The second reason that you can have confidence and assurance in what to believe is because eyewitnesses have testified to this gospel that I'm telling you about and that John's talking about. Eyewitnesses have testified. Now, we're going to hang with Gnosticism for just a little while longer because there's, there's a whole other set of beliefs that the Gnostics held to, and, and it's this. Gnosticism also holds to this idea that salvation is found through kind of a secret knowledge, a very esoteric, hidden away knowledge that's available only to a few. So Gnosticism can be very elitist in this way. It's just, it's just for those few people who can manage to get a hold of this very remote secret knowledge. Um, they refuse, reject commonly held beliefs so what's widespread and what most everybody else believes in the church, the apostolic teaching, for instance, nah, they don't have much time for that. They put that aside and they're looking for something additional. So they often look for additional revelation about who Jesus is and what he has done. They're not content with what the apostles were teaching. They want something more. Now, this also has kind of reared its ugly head in our culture. Maybe you guys have heard about the Gnostic Gospels. Well, back in 1945, in Egypt, there were a bunch of manuscripts uncovered, and they're called the Gnostic Gospels. Um, Judas wrote a gospel, and Thomas wrote a gospel. And so our culture fairly recently 
um, partly in response to the Da Vinci Code, the book and the movie, has taken this great interest in the Gnostic Gospels. Time <clears throat> Magazine uh, calls them the, the Lost Gospels. So, you know, there you get that secret knowledge that these Gospels have contained this information that's been covered up. It's, it's, it's lost and not many people know about it, but there are a few who do. It's this secret knowledge, and if you want to be saved, you've got to get in, in this kind of elitist knowledge. That, that's what they're saying, and that's what we see in the Lost Gospels. Elaine Pagels is a scholar who's written this book called The Gnostic Gospels. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about these Gospels and explaining why we should not see them as a legitimate revelation from God. That uh, would probably be a, a good Sunday school class. I think uh, Dan Perkins actually did that a, a few years ago. Maybe we should revisit that sometime. But John here in this letter is disputing this view. Notice how he talks about this gospel. It's not something secret at all. Look what he says in verse 2. This life was made manifest. We've seen it and we testify to it. And we are proclaiming it to you. We're proclaiming this eternal life. Verse 3, he goes on and says it again. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you. John has no interest in keeping this secret. He wants it known. He wants it proclaimed. He wants everybody to know. The gospel is not some secret, esoteric knowledge that's only reserved for a few. No, the apostles wanted everybody to know. And so they preached and told everybody that they could think of about the gospel. And that's been happening for 2,000 years now of church history as Christians and missionaries and preachers and brothers and sisters in Christ have been proclaiming the gospel. The whole idea is so that everybody would know, so that you would know, so that people in all tribes and all nations of all socioeconomic levels would know the gospel, hear it. And not feel like it's not for them. Not feel like it's some secret thing that somehow is off limits to them. John wants it proclaimed. And this word here, testify, I think is very significant in verse 2. He says, we testify to it. We testify to it. That's the language of the courtroom. And what John is saying here is, not only have I seen this eternal word of life come in the flesh in the person of Jesus, but I am here to testify to it. I'm an eyewitness to what Jesus has said and done, and I'm here to share it with you and tell you about it. Eyewitness testimony, you know it's very important as we seek the truth. We, that, that's one of the best things that we can find if we're trying to make a case for something. We want to see someone who actually saw what happened. If you saw a crime, it's very likely that you'd be called into a courtroom to testify to what you have seen. The reason why is because that's very important to someone making a case. Let me see an eyewitness. And what John is saying here is, I am an eyewitness. <laughs> I, I saw Jesus. Now, there's reasons to maybe doubt an eyewitness if the person is uh, not a person of integrity or not trustworthy for some reason. We might doubt the eyewitness. We certainly have no reasons to think that John was an untrustworthy person. But we also might doubt testimony if it comes from just one person. You know, you hear about these, you know, accounts of UFO sightings, and very often it's just, you know, one guy in a trailer park in his backyard, and he says he saw a UFO. You know, sometimes we doubt that, and one of the reasons why is because, well, it's just one person. 
But what John is saying here, if you look at verse 3, notice the plural pronoun, that which we have seen. So it's not just John. He's not the only eyewitness person. That which we have seen, we are proclaiming to you, church. There's multiple eyewitnesses to this Jesus who's broken into history. There's many people who have seen what he said, what he did. Um, Peter says this, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, kind of like the Gnostics would believe, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, I I saw it. I saw him. Um, Paul says the same thing here, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you, Corinthians, as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, an eyewitness, then to the twelve, more eyewitnesses, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers. You know, one person says he sees a UFO, you're not so sure. 500 people say they saw a UFO? Now you're listening. You're paying attention. 500 people at one time. So it's not 500 people who all had an individual experience. It's 500 people in a group and all said they saw the same thing. The risen Jesus Christ. Though some of, uh, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then uh, to the apostles. And so that's considered John an apostle. Um, so he's included as an eyewitness. But that phrase there, most of whom are still alive, I mean, that's a very interesting phrase that Paul uses there. Most of whom are still alive. I mean, why would he say that? Here's all these people that have seen him, and actually they're still alive. They haven't died yet. Why does he point that out? It's like what Paul is saying is they're alive, which means you can go talk to them. You can ask them. If you don't believe me, go ask them. They're still alive. Notice he's naming people, James, Cephas. He's not trying to keep this secret. These are eyewitnesses who have seen Jesus. And what John wants us to know is that this is not something secret, but something that's out in the open, out in the public. Now, you might say, now, why uh, or where can I find this eyewitness testimony now? And the place you can find that is in the pages of the Scriptures. The pages of the New Testament eyewitness testimony to the life of Jesus Christ, to all of his teaching, to his death on the cross and all that was accomplished in his atonement, to his resurrection from the dead and his promise of coming again. Eyewitness testimony there for you. Why? So that you will know. So that you will have confidence, so that you will have assurance by reading the words of the eyewitness testimony on the pages of scripture. Last thing. How can you come to know what to believe? Because there's strength for you in the community of faith. Look look how John goes on here. Verse 3. He's proclaimed these things to you, the church. Why? Verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us. The whole reason this is proclaimed is so that people will hear it and come and have fellowship with other Christians, that people will come and enter into the community of faith. That's what he's saying. We we want you to be part of this 
group. We want you to fellowship with other Christians. Well, what is a Christian? Continue on in verse 3. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful description of a Christian. That's a Christian. One who has fellowship with the Father through Jesus Christ. One who is trusted in what Jesus has done. And as a result of that simple faith in Jesus' work, there is now fellowship, friendship with God the Father. The word of life from the beginning who has existed from all time and has broken into this world. The Christian is one who says, I know this God. I have a personal relationship with him. I walk with him. I talk with him. He talks to me. I serve him. I worship him. He loves me. He walks with me. He goes with me. That's how, what fellowship is. If, you, if, you, if that sounds strange to you, you know, you think you're a Christian, but the idea of having fellowship with God sounds strange to you. It could be that you're not a Christian. This is the essence of being a Christian. Fellowship with the Father through the Son. But notice how John is putting these two together. Fellowship with the Father through the Son is connected to fellowship with us, with Christians. These two absolutely go together. There's no way you can say, yes, I have fellowship with the Father, but I have no fellowship with Christians. That, that's not possible. It's like thinking of a person whose head has been cut off. A head belongs on a body. When you cut a head off a body, that's a grotesque image. And that's just as grotesque to think of a Christian being cut off from the church. We are part of Jesus' body. He is our head and we are meant to go together. Now, what does this have to do with knowing? Well, it's this. I think it's very interesting that as John here is talking about writing these things so that you may know, and then he talks about fellowship with us, fellowship in the community of faith, because, friends, this is it. I don't think we can overestimate how important it is to what we know, the people that we admire and respect. You will tend always to adopt the views and beliefs of the people you hang out with the people that you fellowship with, the people you respect, the people you admire, you will tend to believe what they believe. Um, Alan Jacobs has written this book called How to Think, and he says, you know, often we hear people say, think for yourself. And what Alan Jacobs says is, actually, you never think for yourself. Nobody thinks for himself or herself. He writes this, he says, to think independently of other human beings is impossible. Thinking is necessarily, thoroughly, and wonderfully social. That's why involvement in the church is so absolutely important. You will tend to adopt the beliefs and convictions of other people in this church if this is the place that you choose to make your home. And if you pull out of the church and you begin to connect to another group, it's very likely that whatever that group is, you'll start to adopt their beliefs. So what's available to you here is the fellowship of the church. And if you want your assurance and conviction strengthened, be here on Sunday mornings, Come to our discipleship hour at 9 a.m., get in a life group, join a Bible study, hang out with your brothers and sisters in Christ, immerse yourself in the community of faith. And the promise here 
is that by doing that, your joy actually will be complete. That's what John says at the end of verse 4. So, friends, I just want you to see that it is possible to have assurance. It is possible to have confidence. It's not an arrogant thing to say, yes, I know I have eternal life. God's broken into this world. There are eyewitness testimonies to what the gospel is about and what Jesus has done. And there's a community of faith in which we can immerse ourselves to know him better. If you're not a Christian, I hope you keep coming back. And I want you to know that you too can know God. You can have fellowship with this Father through the Son. And if you are a Christian, my prayer through this series is that you would have increased assurance that your sins are forgiven, that your shame has been removed, that the Holy Spirit lives in you, that you are justified before God, that you are loved by your Heavenly Father, that eternal life is yours. Make that your prayer. I'll pray with you. And as we go through this book, let's look to God to increase our assurance in his goodness. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of 1 John. Would you please, by your spirit, bless our study of this book over the coming weeks. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.